Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar. This is the first of about eight podcasts that will close out the Great Famine series. We are starting with a two-part episode about the famine in one small Tipperary town, Clahine. By focusing on the lives of just three individuals over two episodes, we are going to delve deep into this one community to look at some of the controversies that surrounded the Great Famine. These include the export of food, the resistance to those exports, and how what seemed like decent people could act with what was callous indifference when their poor neighbours were starving to death. The two parts of this episode will also move the overall story of the famine along and by the end of part two of this show we will have reached the opening months of 1849 and have entered the final phase of the famine. This episode utilised archives in Dublin and New York and there are a few people I would like to thank, primarily Ted Riley in the New York Historical Archives and Martin Nutty for all the help he provided in New York. Clahine has been the focus of much research over the last few decades and I would like to acknowledge the great work The Famine in the Valley by Edmund O'Reardon that's available for free online and is linked in the show notes. Also, William Smith's essay about the famine in the parish of Shanrahan in the Atlas of the Great Irish Famine was an essential text. I would also like to thank Aidan Crow for reading the David Keane letters, Morris Casey for reading Robert Davis's report and Marco Dwyer for reading the words of James Frazier. Finally, I can't go any further without mentioning the show patrons, without whose support and patience I simply couldn't have produced a podcast of this size. I'm really thankful, it means so much. And this week I want to thank show patrons Leslie, Porrick Timlin, Tim Shea, Barry Donoghue, David Healy, Nicola Mooney, Patrick Healy, Edward Jordan, Nicola Bent, Jess Muse, and Lark Robert. And now we'll start the story of the famine in Clahine with the Tipperary man, Robert Davis. In better times, the prospect of spending a day riding through the Galtee Valley would have been enticing for Robert Davis. This lush farmland between the Galtee and Knockmeal Down Mountains was spectacular and in late February 1847, it must have been unusually picturesque. Tipperary had experienced some of the heaviest snowfalls in a decade earlier in the month, but this had melted. So while the roads on the valley floor were clear, the mountains on either side, presumably, still had a dusting of snow, creating an evocative landscape. 
However, when Robert Davis rose early on the 22nd of February 1847 in his home in the nearby town of Clonmel to prepare for his day in this scenic valley, it was less than appealing. As he saddled his horse, Davis's mind was not focused on the natural beauty he would encounter. What lay before him was going to be a gruelling and potentially dangerous ordeal. As Black 47, that terrible year of the Great Hunger, tightened its grip on the population, Robert Davis had been tasked with travelling into the Galti Valley and assessing how the famine was impacting the population. To be charged with such a duty spoke volumes to Robert Davis's background. By early 1847, many people were far too weak to care about others or assess the wider impact of the famine. In a sad reflection of the situation, many who had horses were increasingly looking at the animals as a potential source of food rather than a mode of transport. Davis was not one such person. His family were among the wealthiest in Clonmel and not at risk of starvation. However, as a member of the Society of Friends, or Quakers, Davis was heavily involved in famine relief. The Quakers in Clonmel, like their fellow Congregationalists across Ireland, had established a local relief committee in the area, and part of their task was to gauge how serious famine conditions were across Tipperary and parts of the neighbouring county of Waterford. They would then in turn send their reports to the Quakers' Central Relief Committee in Dublin. So it was that Robert Davis set out from Clonmel, travelling west along the road into the Galti Valley, ultimately making his way toward the largest town in the region, Clahine. Along the route he planned to call into towns and villages, stopping at soup kitchens, trying to gain an understanding of how people were faring. If the rumours and newspaper reports could be believed, Davis could expect to find violence and the full horrors of starvation. That said, what was unfolding in the Galti Valley around Clahine was a very different famine to that in the far west in the desperately impoverished districts of Mayo, Galway, Kerry and West Cork. To understand the famine in Clahine, we need to first look at the natural landscape which shaped life in the valley. As he pushed apprehensively west, Robert Davis did not record any details of the landscape. This is hardly surprising given the horrors he was faced with. However, James Fraser, a well-known Irish gardener of the time, visited the region in the late 1840s and wrote the following account. This gives us some sense of the Galti Valley where the following events played out. The mountain scenery is highly imposing and the soil is rich and yields large crops of the finest wheat. The mountains rise boldly from the plain which sweeps along their base. In passing through this rich and very interesting tract of country, we leave Castle Grace and the extensive flour mills of Mr Grubb on our left before we reach the small town of Clahine, which contains flour mills, a small cavalry barracks, the Union Workhouse and an inn where horses and carriages can be obtained. There are other mills in the vicinity which are propelled by the Avon Tar, the river that runs past the town. As may be judged from the extensive flour mills, the country around Clahine is very productive of wheat, of which large quantities are purchased at the weekly markets, made into flour of a very superior quality and sent by land to Clamel, whence it is conveyed down the river shore. About two miles from Clahine is Shanbali, the seat of Lord Lismore. This occupies the centre of the valley and commands the most magnificent views of the mountains. These words give us some sense of the terrain Robert Davis was moving through in this rich, fertile valley. Although he was surely well aware of Clahine and the Galti Valley, 
by reputation ever before he set foot in the place. The town of Clohine had been pretty important to the commercial life of South Tipperary for decades. It had been built at the confluence of two rivers and over the centuries the townspeople had channelled these waters to power no less than seven large stone mills to grind the crops that grew across the lush farmlands of the valley. Robert Davis would have been familiar with these mills, or at least their produce, given each year vast quantities of clohine flour was hauled overland on carts to his hometown of Clonmel, where it was loaded onto barges. These barges then carried the flour down the river shore to the port of Waterford, where it was exported to Britain. The sheer quantities of grain being produced in the valley was astounding. In 1846, it was estimated that somewhere between 70 and 80,000 barrels of flour had been exported from Clohine. The shipments arriving each week must have frequently blocked the streets of Clonmel as they made their way to the river docks in the town. However, even though the valley was producing vast quantities of food, what Robert Davis found there on February the 22nd, 1847, was disturbing to say the least. When he returned to his home in Clonmel, he wrote a lengthy report of what he had encountered on that day, and even 170 years later, it makes for unsettling reading. Davis commented on the demeanour of the people. It is remarkable, in passing along through these destitute districts, to observe the total absence of anything bordering on pleasantry or cheerfulness in the countenances of the people, old and young. All seem to be downstricken and dejected. He elaborated on this situation, prevailing in Clohine and the surrounding countryside. I went to Clohine and visited the soup, or rather porridge, establishment there. It was at full work and appears to be attended to. From Clohine we proceeded to the village of Burncourt, situated at the foot of the Galtee Mountains, a locality where destitution abounds to a fearful degree. Deaths from actual starvation were a daily occurrence. Davis also remembered this harrowing account of starvation he witnessed in a crowd gathering at a soup kitchen. There was no mistaking the shrunken looks and sharpened features of the poor creatures who were slowly and with tottering steps assembling. Sheer destitution marked their attenuated countenance. That Robert Davis could find widespread destitution and starvation in a valley that could produce tens of thousands of barrels of flour each year it's hard to get our heads around. This is, in many ways, what separates the famine in Clohine from those long impoverished communities of the West, some of which had struggled long before the Great Famine. Clohine was wealthy and produced an abundance of food for export. How Robert Davis could find people starving in this valley in 1847 then asks so many questions. Where did the food go? Why did the people let it go? And who thought exporting food was a good idea in the middle of a famine? I want to get beyond just saying how shocking this all was and try and understand the processes behind what was happening in Clohine because this small community in South Tipperary explains a lot of wider issues facing Ireland in the late 1840s. To do this, we first need to turn the clock back a few years and look at life in the valley and the build-up to Black 47, beginning first by looking at the makeup of communities in this valley. This is essential as tensions between various groups shaped the reactions and responses to what would happen in the late 1840s.
The Galtee Valley produced enormous wealth in the 1840s through the export of crops that grew in the fertile soils of the region. However, it was also a deeply unequal society. People lived in both extreme wealth and extreme poverty. Perhaps the best symbol of this inequality was Shen Valley Castle, situated a few miles outside Clohine. Built in 1810, this was the home of the largest landowner in the valley, Lord Lismore, Cornelius O'Callaghan. His house, despite its name, was not a medieval castle, but instead a stately home imitating medieval architecture. It had only been built in 1810 and reflected the emergence of the O'Callaghan family as one of the wealthiest in the region. While Lord Lismore perched at the apex of valley society, there were numerous large farmers renting farms of up to and over a thousand acres in size from him. These farmers were very wealthy people in their own right. Alongside these people, some of the residents of Clohine itself were also very wealthy people. These included Edwin Taylor, Lord Lismore's land agent, but more importantly, the Grubb family, who owned several mills around the town. These mills ground the crops grown in the valley into flour, which made export easier, and they derived large profits from this trade. The lives of the O'Callaghans, the Taylors, the Grubbs, and the large farmers stood in sharp contrast to that of those at the bottom of society in and around Clohine. In the town itself, there was an emerging working class who toiled in the Grubb family mills, and judging on the large number of substandard houses in the town, they seemed to have been paid pretty poorly. Then in the surrounding countryside, alongside those very large farms, there were also smaller farmers who could only afford to rent a few acres of land. They grew wheat or oats, which they sold to pay their rent, while their families largely survived on potatoes. At the very bottom of society, landless labourers existed at the margins of life in the Galtee Valley. They rented tiny patches of land to grow potatoes for food, often paying their rent through work rather than money. So before the famine, the valley was a complex, unequal place, with the landless labourers living in a quasi-feudal economy. This deeply unequal society inevitably saw outbursts of sporadic class conflict in the 1830s and 40s. While conflict between the rich and poor was somewhat inevitable, through the 19th century, this intensified. While the population grew rapidly, the larger farmers sought to increase the amount of land under cultivation in the valley. This saw the increasing numbers in the ranks of the poor marginalised and pushed into the less fertile lands in the mountains. This shift also witnessed a change in how some at least understood concepts of private property. In rural communities across Britain and Ireland, the poor traditionally had rights to common lands and resources which were often essential to their income. However, in the early 19th century, these were being increasingly privatised. And in Clohine, where the rich wanted more land under cultivation in the final years before the famine, the privatisation of common lands was leading to conflict. In 1840, for example, Lord Lismore began to prosecute small farmers who grazed their sheep on what appears to have once been communal mountain pastures. A few weeks after several court cases, large tracts of woodland and bogs on his estate were burned down in retaliation. Then, a few years later, Lord Lismore, along with the other major landlord in the valley, the Earl of Glengall, came into conflict with the landless labourers over something called turf mould. This was essentially dust collected from the bogs on the Galtee and Knockmeal Down mountains on either side of the valley, which could be sold to farmers who used it as fertiliser. 
Harvesting this turf mould was a practice that had gone on for decades, at the very least. However, in the early 1840s, both Lord Lismore and the Earl of Glengall claimed the bogs exclusively belonged to them. They took hundreds of cases against people they claimed were essentially robbing the turf mould in 1843 and 1844. This reflected very important and serious changes. It established a trend where the rich were pursuing large-scale economic changes in the valley and the poor were seen as expendable in this process. Private property was also increasingly seen as inviolable by the rich, not just in the Galti Valley but much further afield, and these factors would have a huge influence on what was about to happen during the Great Famine. When the potato crop failed in 1845, but especially after that catastrophic failure in 1846, the Galti Valley plunged into a deep, deep crisis. In many ways, the potato crop was the glue holding society and even the economy of the region together. It allowed the rich to export most of the food grown as the poor survived on the margins eating potatoes. When the potato was destroyed by blight, something had to give. But even though the poor began to starve, the landlords, the mill owners and the large farmers continued to export huge quantities of grain from Clahin. Inevitably, with some in the valley exporting food for profit while others were starving, tensions rose through the early months of 1846. Soon, the carts of flour being hauled through the roads and lanes between Clahin and Clamel came under attack by crowds of increasingly hungry people. Indeed, as early as April the 1st, 1846, newspapers were reporting the arrival of Clahine flower carts in Clonmel without attack as news in itself. In a move which was considered highly provocative in some quarters, the wealthy in the valley successfully lobbied the government to provide military escorts for the flower. Soon, the flower was being moved in vast convoys accompanied by soldiers. These were up to 80 carts long, which must have stretched for nearly half a mile along these country roads. However, the military convoys were not a deterrent for the starving. This was seen on April 14th when one flower convoy made it all the way from Clahine to the outskirts of Clonmel where it was then attacked by starving people. The military escort announced they were prepared to shoot but the people responded, we may as well as be shot as starve. While the landlords and the wealthy of the valley had shown themselves willing to use the stick to fight back the crowds, they also offered a carrot as an incentive to stop these attacks. By the end of April, the rich, now fearful of the general disorder resulting from the deepening famine, began to distribute food and plan public works. This work would provide the poor with money so they could survive and wouldn't need to attack the flower carts for food. Alongside this, the military continued to flood the valley and surrounding towns of South Tipperary with units from other parts of Ireland, and it was only with pretty extreme brutality they forced the export of the crop that year. Nevertheless, attacks on convoys continued. In late April, the Grubb family mills at Clahine were attacked, but the police successfully drove back the starving people. In October 1846, flower carts left the Grubb mills at Castle Grace outside Clahine. They made it 13 of the 20 kilometres to Clonmel until they reached a place called Knocklofty. There they were attacked by men, women and children who had been hiding in a house. Having brought sacks with them, they successfully made off with some of the flour. Late 1846 only saw this situation intensify. The export of food obviously pushed prices up at home, 
But then in late November, public works in Crahine, which were providing some people with money, were terminated in one of the many heartless decisions that would take place over the coming years. This left the 1,200 people who had been receiving a wage with no money to buy food. Inevitably, a few days later, they attacked Crahine's bread shops in a major riot. By December, the press were reporting the military convoys of food were being harassed relentlessly, but the exports of this food continued, and in early 1847, reports of mayhem were still seeping out from the Galti Valley, with one anonymous correspondent describing commercial life in Clahine in the following terms. Indian corn and guns, meal and gunpowder are the articles in which most trade is now being done. However, a change of a sort was underway, and when the Clonmel Quaker Robert Davis arrived on February the 22nd, 1847, he found the valley strangely quiet on that cold spring day. There was no evidence of violence or upheaval at all, but as we have heard, he did encounter the signs of famine everywhere he went. In his own words, Robert Davis remarked, Strange to say, I saw the flour and meal being conveyed along the road without any escort save that of the car driver. The people in these localities do conduct themselves peaceably and refrain from outrage in a remarkable manner. It seems, however, by this point, the people had essentially been defeated and now hunger was taking its toll. Their lives were starting to ebb away and protest was beyond them. The poor of Clahine and the Galti Valley had lost their desperate struggle and were now beginning to starve. This phase of the famine where the affected become listless was well documented across Ireland in the 1840s. Robert Davis's experiences and reactions to what he saw in the valley that day bring us on to a very controversial topic. Next I want to try and look at what seems unfathomable to us today. How well off Irish people like the Earl of Glengall, Lord Lismore or the Grubb family could continue to export large quantities of food while people were dying in the streets around them. Often, looking back at history, we ponder about how human beings can inflict terrible cruelty on each other. The Great Hunger is no different. As we have seen, people continued to profit by exporting food while their neighbours starved. This continued in the Galti Valley right into the early months of Black 47 and indeed well beyond. There were people responsible for this and we can name a few of them who played an instrumental role in the exports. These included the major landlords, the Earl of Glengall and Lord Lismore, his land agent Edwin Taylor, and then the mill owners, the Grubb family. Each played their own role and profited accordingly. Sometimes it's tempting to resort to words like bad or evil to describe these people, but I don't think it's a very helpful way to understand the past. Saying a man like Lord Lismore was quote-unquote bad implies the suffering in Ireland in the 1840s originated in the nature of individual people and I don't think that's how history works. We need to understand the processes influencing people rather than whether a given person was good or bad. This is particularly the case when we look at people involved in exporting food in Clahine because there's lots of evidence to suggest they were not quote-unquote bad people at all. Indeed, many of those heavily involved in the export of flour had genuine concerns for the suffering of the poor around them. For example, the Grubb family who owned the mills around the town could make genuine efforts to help the poor while simultaneously playing a crucial role in the export of food. 
Members of that same family were on the Quaker Relief Committee in Clonmel and they personally ran a local soup kitchen in Clahine which was supporting 260 people on a daily basis in January 1847. Lord Lismore himself also took major steps to help his tenants by reducing rents by over 35% and was frequently cited as an example to others. He also slaughtered his dogs and massively reduced the number of horses in his stables to save money. So if they had concerns for the poor, why then would they export food, something that at the very least was clearly not going to help the situation? Now they probably argued that maintaining exports was the only thing keeping the economy going. But there were, I think, deeper reasons relating to the changing nature of society and economy in the valley over the previous decades. So I mentioned earlier that in 1840 Lord Lismore had claimed rights over the mountain pastures and then a few years later he and the Earl of Glengall had claimed that they were the exclusive owners of the bogs on the mountains and tried to stop poor labourers gathering turf mould. These two incidents are examples of long-running tensions over resources between rich and poor that had been a feature of life in the valley where the poor were increasingly marginalised they had seen their traditional rights, such as the right to common land in terms of mountain pastures or common resources in terms of bogs, being abolished. Now for Lord Lismore, the conflict over the export of flour during the famine probably just seemed like an extension of these previous conflicts and was nothing new or different. It was perhaps, in his mind at least, a new chapter in a battle he had been fighting for decades to try and modernise the economy as he would have seen it in the area. Furthermore, it's worth noting that this was accompanied and shaped by wider changes with the emergence of free market economics in the early 19th century, something that had profound effects. Shaped by these ideas, the likes of Lord Lismore and the Grubb family saw the produce of the valley as exclusively theirs, a product that they could choose to do with as they pleased. While there are cases of wealthy people profiting from the misfortune of the poor long before the 19th century, these new ideas did represent something of a change from previous generations. For example, as late as the 1780s, it had been the government that had led the way by banning certain exports during the famine of 1782. However, in the 1840s, the British government were ideologically committed to economic liberalism and advocated free trade, something many in the middle and upper classes believed also had moral virtues. This, I think, provided a wider context for the actions of Lord Lismore, the large farmers and the mill owners like the Grubb family who continued to export flour in the midst of the famine. They saw the flour as exclusively theirs and that the poor had no automatic right to this food, even if they were starving. It should be said that these views were not just the preserve of a handful of wealthy people in Ireland, but they were pretty commonly held among the Irish middle and upper classes. Robert Davis, for example, while deeply sympathetic to the poor, did not support the attacks on convoys, even when it was clearly a matter of survival. And what may surprise many of you is that the Irish nationalists of Daniel O'Connell's Repeal Association more or less agreed. Generally speaking, they were economic liberals. In April 1846, the Clonmel repealers met after numerous attacks on shipments of flour in the region. They condemned the actions of the starving as, and I quote, disgraceful, and blamed the riots on what they called Paddy McHugh's, a euphemism for Asian provocateurs. Indeed, they would go as far as invoking O'Connell's famous words, the man who commits the crime gives strength to the enemy, 
to condemn the acts of the starving poor. These attitudes and reactions highlight class division, something often overlooked in historical narratives on the Great Hunger, was frequently more important than, say, nationalist or unionist political views. Most political activists of all hues in the 1840s were middle class in background. They viewed the poor with what was at best a patronising attitude and at worst utter contempt, often seeing them as a dangerous rabble that needed to be kept in line. Overall, these events unfolding in the Galtee Valley highlighted the fatal flaws in the British government's famine relief policy which was shaped by laissez-faire attitudes to the economy. Successive governments were determined that the export of food from Ireland should continue. This would have provided further confirmation if ever there was any doubt in the mind of the likes of Lord Lismore. This policy led to a catastrophic situation in Ireland and indeed in this breadbasket of the country that was the Galtee Valley. Next we will see just how bad this was but I think it might be worth taking a quick break first. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish history. In 1847, the situation in Ireland was so bad that the British government finally broke from their economic dogma of non-intervention and opened up soup kitchens to feed the starving population. Operating under legislation called the Temporary Relief Act, The rollout was somewhat delayed by the bureaucracy of the British government demanding every last bowl of soup be accounted for. However, when they were finally up and running in the summer of Black 47, these soup kitchens were massively successful. One advantage of the relentless bureaucracy of the British government is that they have left us with great records. 
we can see from the soup kitchens that operated in the Galtee Valley just how disastrous the overall policy of the previous two years had been. While Robert Davis's account gives us a feeling of what it was like, these reports produce hard data, which was shocking. The government soup kitchens opened in the Galtee Valley in early April 1847. In this area, with a pre-famine population of around 47,000 people, at one point in the summer of Black 47, 25,730 people were relying on soup kitchens for food. That's an extraordinary figure, given the same valley had exported thousands of barrels of flour. That figure is worth dwelling on. 25,000 people in this one valley alone, more than half the population. These soup kitchens were effective though in feeding the people and the death toll fell across Ireland in that summer. However, the British government, as has been explained in depth in this series before, closed the soup kitchens in the late summer and autumn of the year. This created a renewed crisis in Clahine. What the 15th of August 1847 was like in the town is hard to fathom because on that day the government soup kitchens closed for the last time. While the situation had improved, the crisis was far from over. The soup kitchens were still feeding over 12,000 people, that's one in four in the Galtee Valley. To make matters worse, private charities like the one Robert Davis worked for were also beginning to wind down their operations as donations were drying up. They simply had no more money. This left the poor reliant on the workhouse in Clahine, which by October 9th, 1847, was already full and turning people away. We will look at this in part two of the episode. Next, however, I want to turn to the story of an individual who was not starving to death, but was increasingly at risk of being sucked into the black hole the famine was creating in Irish society. David Keane will give us a sense of how the entire economy in Clahine was collapsing under the weight of the famine. Although it was never clear, David Keane does not seem to have been a native of Clahine or the Galtee Valley. He was probably originally from County Waterford on the far side of the Knockmill Down Mountains to the south of the town. However, by September 1847, Keane, in his early 20s, was living and working in Clahine. Well educated with an interest in history and politics, he was by no means a wealthy man, although it would appear he was not totally impoverished either. In September 1847, John McKenna, a draper in Clahine, had offered Keane a job in his shop. Now to secure a job, any job, in late 1847 was difficult and David took the position. Why he above so many others secured this highly coveted post is unclear, but the fact he shared the same nationalist political convictions as his employer may have helped. When he began working in McKenna's Drapers on Main Street, David found himself in a town and indeed a countryside that was slipping further and further into the grip of the crisis the Great Famine was unleashing on Irish society. Many had foolishly pinned hopes on the harvest of 1847, rescuing the situation, but this had never been more than wishful thinking. The harvest could never have been anything other than abysmal that year. Even though the potato blight did not return to any great degree, few crops of any kind had been planted because, in the crucial months of late 1846 and early 1847, the poor had not been ploughing the land or sowing crops. Instead, they had been working on the ill-conceived government public works schemes. With few crops sown, it was inevitable a disastrous harvest would follow. This had been clear for those willing to pay attention to the signs. 
Robert Davis, for example, the Clonmel Quaker who we met earlier in the show, had noted very worrying signs when he visited the Galtee Valley as early as February 1847. He remarked, Scarcely an instance of fieldwork was observable, but the land lying desolate and uncultivated since last summer or autumn, and with the exception of the wheat crop, which occupies in some places about an average breadth. Sure enough, eight months later, the resulting harvest was predictably pitiful, even when the Plato blight, which had devastated the crop in 1846, did not return to any great degree. However, the British government nevertheless proclaimed the famine over and began to wind down their relief efforts and, as we have seen, the soup kitchens closed. The famine in those months began to shift in nature as the problem became about access to money to buy food rather than an actual lack of food itself. Furthermore, the poor had fallen behind in their rents and a major crisis on that front was brewing as landlords were preparing to evict huge numbers of their tenants. The wider economy plunged off a cliff and this naturally had an impact in a country town like Crahine. The shops there were dependent on the business of farmers in the surrounding countryside and they now were either starving or struggling to pay for the very basics like food and rent. So while David Keane must have been elated to have secured a paid position in McKenna's drapers, he was surely aware just how precarious this, or indeed any job, was. Shops like McKenna's would be lucky to survive the damage the famine was doing to the Irish economy. All Keane had to do was look at the trade that pawnbrokers were doing at the time. These were what might be described as bottom feeders of the economy, where in normal times those in dire straits could sell their clothes, or indeed anything they owned, for money. However, in later 1848, a certain Mr Ferguson, a pawnbroker who owned a network of several pawn shops in Tipperary, including one in Care, not far from Clahine, described what was happening to his business. While most pawnbrokers witnessed an increase in trade in the early months of the Great Famine, as the crisis deepened, the poor had nothing left to sell, and by 1848 Ferguson's trade had halved since the onset of the famine. This was because, in Ferguson's words, The people's clothes became so bad that no pawnbroker could receive them. Therefore, pawnbrokers had to limit their business, and the class of person I understand who resort to the establishments latterly are the small farmers who were in comparative comfort sometime since. McKenna's drapers, where David Keane worked, must have been feeling the impact of this. Those same small farmers that were now turning to pawn shops would not be buying anything in McKenna's drapers if they were selling the clothes they owned to pay for essentials. Nevertheless, John McKenna's business did survive through that terrible winter and into 1848, and David Keane was able to use his wages to help him and his family survive through the darkest days of the famine. This is a somewhat unusual story, or at least one not recounted very often, how people did manage to eke out a living. However, that said, how long David could continue to carve out this living was very uncertain, as the general situation was dire. There was no sign of improvement, and there seemed to be no way the Irish economy could recover. In March 1848, David Keane sat down to write to a friend, Michael O'Neill, who had already emigrated to the USA. This letter leaves us with an unusually personal account of the Great Hunger, but also gives voice to a person who had survived three years of famine by March 1848, but was now utterly dejected and in despair about what the future held for him. The Great Hunger had destroyed the economy, Clahine, and in many respects David Keane's life. 
His letter, unpublished until now, began. Clahine, March 21st, 1848. Friend, your first two letters have come to hand. Both I read. By your hand and last dated the 15th of January, I perceive ours in return have miscarried. I sent two and so did your other friends. I am exceedingly happy to hear that you're doing well and that my sister enjoys perfect tranquillity. This issue of mail getting lost, raised in the opening lines of the letter, must have been a major worry for people. Once emigrants left Ireland, the only way of communicating with them was through handwritten letters. If they were lost, no one knew if their loved ones were safe. Even more pressing, though, was the fact that many letters contained remittances, money emigrants sent home to their loved ones to survive. If the letter was lost, this could mean death. David then set out what was happening in and around Clahine and in neighbouring County Waterford, where he may have been from. Attempting to give you the least idea of the extent to which the wretchedness prevails in this unfortunate country would be in vain. Ever since you left, famine stalked the land, mowing down all before it. How many thousands of your intimate acquaintances have fallen victims there too, and consigned thousands, coffinless, to premature and untimely graves? Reflect on knowing that Michael Fitzgerald of Helvick and some of his family have fallen prey to the prevailing destitution. In fact, all classes feel the pressure. Farmers, who held thirty acres of land, were obliged to take refuge in the poorhouse to avoid this terrible fate. The mention of farmers who held 30 acres of land being increasingly impoverished tallies with what the pawnbroker Ferguson said, that even those in a previously more comfortable position were now destitute. David Keane next turned to his own family. This provides remarkably personal information, so often missing in historical accounts. We have all felt the worry of maybe misinterpreted messages, emails and letters, and David Keane now turned to the issue of a potentially misinterpreted letter. The consequence of this in late 1840s Ireland was not just embarrassment, but it could be potentially lethal, as we see now. Providence has miraculously preserved our people amidst the general wreck. None has suffered. Your children, of which you were long to hear, are quite happy. My poor mother, for some time, is low in spirits. Of all your friends here, my sister Alice I must introduce particularly to your notice. Since the arrival of your first letter, she cannot contain herself with the burning desire of being with you. She complains of your forgetfulness or negligence. Hope has left her, but which your promise inspired at your departure, namely that you could pay her passage. As far as I could understand by your last, you still mean it, but she is more apprehensive. She says you do not speak plain enough to assure her of it. She would even be willing to pay you double the sum and still regard you as her deliverer. I beg of you to do something for her to avert the terrible fate that probably may otherwise await. These details that imply Michael O'Neill and David Keane's sister Alice had some form of relationship prior to his leaving is very unusual to see or think about in the context of the history of the Great Famine. Historians rarely focus on it, but obviously life did continue for some people, and those who were struggling through the famine still felt emotions. However, David's final line in that paragraph that mentions the potentially terrible fate that awaited his sister Alice if she stayed in Ireland was a reminder that the fear of famine was a constant. While the letter so far was about other people, David Keane increasingly turned the focus to himself in the later parts of the letter. 
It's obvious that despite his job he felt Ireland was economically ruined and he wanted to escape too and was hoping that Michael O'Neill would not only arrange for his sister to emigrate but also maybe David himself. Having already mentioned he could not afford to buy a ticket, he says, I hope one day to face the happiness experienced by my countrymen who in the glorious land of the stars and stripes, the refuge of the oppressed, seek protection from the tyranny and damnable prejudice of English rule. The situation I held at your leaving, I left about six months ago, and am since with Mr John Kenna of this town. My salary up to this time, I have given to my people to help them on. If I were in want of a situation tomorrow, I would search this whole country and not meet a vacancy. In a word... There is no business at all doing. Such is the state of things. I fear henceforth that the salary I will be allowed will be too trifling to permit my think of laying up as much as would transport me over. He finally asks O'Neill in a roundabout manner. On an aside, he reveals a surprising knowledge of US history in these lines. Nevertheless, I would still prefer Alice to be provided for. No inducement would make her marry here. Of course, it would be folly to think of it. Any time you would send for your children, she would be prepared to accompany them. And then ye will not forget me. I will never be happy until I visit Lexington, where the brave Americans first shed their blood in the cause of freedom, and also Bunker Hill, where they sheathed their enemies. While David was clearly interested in politics, he never voiced whether he supported those who advocated an armed revolt against British rule in Ireland, or whether he supported the more pacifist-orientated followers of Daniel O'Connell. In any case, a rebellion would be launched and it would fail a few months after David wrote this letter. It took place not far from Clahine, as we saw in the episode on the 1848 Famine Rebellion. In the final paragraph, David Keane described the political situation in Ireland as one that was shrouded in a cloud of utter despair. It is helped from the critical predicament in which European powers are all placed and the probable war between England and France that the repeal of the Union is not far distant. However, I scarcely think that anything could alleviate unfortunate Ireland from her present condition. I have not mentioned that your friends wish to be remembered to you, all expressing the satisfaction at your happiness and the praying for its long continuation, and in union therewith I say Amen. Forever yours sincerely, David Keane David was just one of thousands writing such letters to friends, family and acquaintances in the USA. They were by no means the most desperate though. There were all too many unable to write, maybe illiterate, had no work and had accepted their fate and were now dying in cabins and workhouses across the west of Ireland. People like David Keane were those who could still hold out some hope. In the coming months David would actually be granted his wish and successfully emigrated to the USA. His saviour, however, was not Michael O'Neill, but instead the wealthy Reverend Isaiah Matheson, a Baptist pastor from Shaftesbury, Vermont, who paid for numerous Irish people to escape the famine. Matheson's generosity, particularly given he had no connection to Ireland, was a beacon in this dark story. Remarkably, a letter from David Keane to this Reverend Matheson survives in the New York Historical Society archives. It's a poignant reminder of the reality of what often awaited Irish emigrants in the USA. While David Keane held out hope that he would find a land paved with gold almost, the reality was a disappointment. Boston, September 27th, 1848. Sir, 
The hopes I entertained of success have delayed me in writing with the prospect of realisation each successive day. Now I find that the person on whom I calculated can do no good without a respectable acquaintance in my business. A stranger can't get along. One promise still hangs on, and fearing the termination of it might be similar to the preceding ones. We can assume David was hoping to become a draper like he had been in Clahine, but this was impossible in Boston because he had no references. Keane went on to tell Matheson that increasingly desperate he had applied for manual labour, something he seems to have thought was probably beneath him. This day I applied for employment in the fixing of pipes in one of the streets and was promised it on Monday next. I don't at all feel discouraged at being obliged to turn so to get on. A person must bear some inconvenience. This city is overrun with strangers. How can I state my gratitude to you? There is a language of the heart that cannot be expressed. Infinitely short of the descriptive language of speech by which alone I would like to thank you, I trust in Providence before long I will be able to give you proof of what I feel. I have hopes that my next will be the bearer of better news. David Keane was experiencing the harsh life that often awaited many emigrants in the USA. Frequently, they had to endure a very difficult few years of adjustment as they battled with other Irish emigrants for jobs. David Keane's final words reveal what was perhaps a degree of uncertainty as to whether he had actually made the correct decision to leave Ireland at all. Alice, my sister, was wishing to be here. I am sure she would be otherwise if she had an idea of the many that are looking for places. I remain, sir, your most obedient servant, David Keane. Now, as difficult as life in Boston was, had David Keane known what was going on back at home in Clahine, he might not have made such a statement. In his first letter, that's the one to Michael O'Neill, David had mentioned the potentially terrible fate that would await his sister Alice if she had remained in Ireland, and the situation hadn't improved since he had written those lines. The economy had spiralled further and further out of control, prolonging the famine well beyond Black 47. I could find no more details about what exactly happened to David's sister, Alice Keane. But in the next episode, we will travel back across the Atlantic and refocus on Clahine and life in the town through late 1848 and into 1849. To do this, we will look at the life of a man called Richard Burke, who arguably, more than anyone in the town, understood the true extent of what was happening in the later years of the Great Hunger. Until then, Sloan. Hold up. What was that? 
boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.